Today's reading is uh, from Matthew uh, chapter 14. You can follow on the screen or in the leaflet that you were given as you came in. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist who is risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. And John and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter, having given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came and said, This is a remote place and it's always getting late. Send the clouds away so that they go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men, 
besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because of the wind that was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out of them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Genezareth. When the men of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought them their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. Thanks, David. Well, good morning. My name's Scott. Uh, you want to keep those uh, Bible readings handy as we work along. Uh, let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that this morning you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Amen. Well, uh, we share a back fence uh, with the Zabierski family from church, uh, who many of you will know. Uh, and we don't have a gate between our yards, but we do have a fence, uh, sorry, a ladder that goes up and over the fence. And uh, one night, Keely got the fright of her life uh, when a man wearing, you know, black trousers and a black hoodie pulled up over his head, uh, turned up at the back door. Uh, of course, it was just Mike uh, wanting to be let in out of the cold for our leadership team meeting. <laughs> but today, we're looking at a passage where there are three events where people jumped to the wrong conclusions about who Jesus was. Uh, like Keeley, some of them got a bit of a fright because they jumped to the wrong conclusion about who Jesus really is. Uh, in each of these, Jesus shows who he really is. No ghost, no spirit back from the dead seeking vengeance, no ordinary man. Now, we see here that Jesus is no one less than the compassionate and powerful 
God of creation. Now, we're actually only going to look at the first two. So uh, on your outline there, you'll see there's sort of the three sections, uh, a bit off more than we could chew, uh, and there was so much detail I didn't want to skim through uh, that actually we're not uh, looking at the walking on the water this morning, uh, but there'll be time for questions afterwards. Uh, So you might have some questions about that uh, part of our reading, uh, and feel free to, to ask them then. Well, our story, as uh, Danny reminded us, continues uh, from where we left off, with Jesus going about his ministry of preaching, teaching, healing, and doing miracles to show who he is. And here we take a slight detour to pick up the story of John. Now, John's someone we met right at the very beginning of Matthew's uh, account of Jesus. And we've seen that right from the beginning... John and Jesus' lives and stories have been intertwined. Back in chapter 3, John had begun his public ministry as a prophet or a messenger of God. And Matthew introduced him to us as the messenger that God had promised centuries earlier through the prophet Isaiah. He was a special messenger, a special prophet with a special job to let people know that God was on his way, to let people know that God was coming. And if uh, we were to turn back to chapter 3, we would actually hear John's message. John warned people, well, because God is coming, we need to turn from our sins. We need to stop ignoring and rebelling against God. We need to repent and come for forgiveness. Chapter 3, verse 11. John said this, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I. His sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, as we just read, uh, in John's ministry, even Herod, the ruler of Galilee, didn't escape John's attentions. Now, this isn't the same Herod uh, who tried to kill Jesus as a young boy. Uh, That was actually uh, this Herod's father, Herod the Great. Uh, This Herod we meet is his son, Herod Antipas. Uh, And you can see he didn't really fall far from the tree, did he? (laughs) He's uh, not a very impressive kind of king. Uh, But he takes a little bit too much after his paranoid baby-killing father. In uh, verses 3 and 4, we learn that Herod had run off with his brother's wife and that this pesky prophet John kept pestering him and telling him that he was sinning and needed to repent. Herod was so angry he wanted to kill John, but but notice there in verse 5, he was too weak to do anything about it. Have a look at verse 5. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Too weak and afraid to kill John, he thought he'd shut John up by stuffing him in a prison cell. But then Herod's filthy family fetish got in the way again. Have a look at verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias... Okay, so Herodias, his brother's wife, he's stolen his brother's wife, and her daughter, his niece, is dancing for the guests. Verse 6. 
and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And notice how Herod responds, this weak king. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and the dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. Now, I don't know what picture you've built up so far of Herod, but I'm guessing it's not a very good one. We see his wickedness, his refusal to listen to God and to God's word and to do what God says, combined with his weakness, has resulted in a cruel and malevolent king who looks out for himself rather than his subjects. This is... This is a king that you don't, want to, you don't want to have rule over you. And then this king hears about the true king. Have a look at verse 1. He hears the reports about Jesus. Well, what kind of reports would he have heard? Well, everyone in Judea knew, everyone in Galilee knew that Jesus was going around There were reports of amazing miracles, people being healed, demons being cast out, uh, water turned into wine. And and he had heard that he was telling a message very similar to that of John. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Herod heard these reports, verse 1, and said to his attendants, verse 2, Hey, I know, I know who this is. This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. That's a pretty crazy conclusion to jump to, isn't it? But actually, even though it seems like a crazy conclusion to arrive at, what Herod does here is something that's actually a really common thing that many people do. See, his fear and his guilty conscience has driven him to superstition. See, I I think it seems obvious as we read this, doesn't it, that 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 image of John's head on a plate at his birthday party, it it hasn't left Herod's mind. It's haunting him. He hasn't been able to forget what he did to this prophet of God. And combined with these reports that now there's this guy that John had been talking about who's doing all these miraculous things. Herod's conscience and his fear have driven him to some superstitious, crazy belief about who Jesus is. He's John. He's out to get me. He's a spirit who's looking for revenge. Now, I've never heard anyone else sort of come to that conclusion that Jesus is, you know, someone who's just possessed by a spirit out looking for revenge. Uh, But actually, I've seen people uh, with very straight faces give very superstitious beliefs about who they think Jesus is. See, I think the reality is if, if we refuse to listen to God's messengers, if we've rejected and silenced God's word in our lives, If we continue to live in rebellion, well, then we actually need to, when we hear about Jesus, 
We need something to tell our troubled conscience that lets us off the hook. We need some kind of superstition about Jesus that lets us not deal with that sin that we've decided we don't want to deal with. Whether it's as crazy as, 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 as Herod or it's, you know, that age-old chestnut that, you know, Jesus was just a magician. He went off to India for a while and he learned these magic tricks and he came back and he's, he's just doing tricks. Or Jesus didn't really die he actually traded places with someone just before they were nailed to the cross. And, and then, you know, this other guy, you know, doppelganger, died in his place and then Jesus appeared and, and it's just all a big hoax. Or maybe that, you know, Jesus really did go on the cross and, and he didn't quite die but he, he fainted and they thought he was dead, you know, uh, and he was laid in the tomb and because it was nice and cool and quiet there, he kind of recovered and revived and came back three days later and, you know, started knocking on the stone to let him out. See, people come up with some crazy superstitions about Jesus that allows them to kind of put Jesus aside, allows them not to let Jesus and not, uh, impact on their conscience. Now imagine, at this point, Herod had believed John and what he had said. Imagine at this point Herod had accepted the word of the Lord that Jesus really was God come to his people. Imagine he had accepted and believed what John had said that all who repented and came for forgiveness would be forgiven. Imagine Herod had gone to Jesus, gotten down on his knees and asked for forgiveness. What would Jesus have done for a cruel and malevolent king like Herod? Well, we know the answer, don't we? Jesus actually would have shown him compassion because Jesus is a king completely unlike Herod. Not cruel, not malevolent. He doesn't act for his own interests at the cost of those who, he, who are under him. Jesus is a compassionate king who sacrifices himself for the good of his people. Have a look at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, that's it, he'd heard what had happened to John, that he'd been killed and buried. Jesus heard this and he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, who here has kind of ever wondered what it might, like to, might be like to be a celebrity? Anyone? Come on, be honest. I think most of us probably wondered, you know, what's that life like? What's it like to be the Marilyn Monroes and the, you know, the Kanye Wests of the world? I actually think it would be a pretty awful life. I don't know about you. But can you imagine uh, what it would be like just being hounded all the time? Cameras in your face, people with microphones... And those moments in life when you most want to be left alone are the moments when they're most likely to be the most of them chasing you and trying to figure out what are you going to do, what are you going to say, what are you going to wear. The funerals, the court cases, the honeymoons, the family holidays, paparazzi, cameras, microphones. 
And I, I can actually understand when you see celebrities at these times lash out. You know, do you get that? I think, man, you know, these moments they've had cameras stuffed in their face all the time. I can actually understand when they go, just leave me alone. Get out of my way. I'm mourning a dead relative. I'm, I'm celebrating a family birthday. I'm, I would like to be left alone. And I think if ever there was a moment in Jesus' life that he probably wanted to be left alone, it was probably right here. I mean, we know that when he heard what happened to John, he withdrew by a broke privately to a solitary place. Jesus hears about John's murder, brutal, cruel, senseless. Jesus knew that that was a foretaste of what was coming for him, his own brutal, senseless murder. The reality of what Jesus was doing and what was before him must have hit home to Jesus at that moment. And not only that, he loved John. John was actually Jesus' cousin. Jesus probably just wanted some time to go and have a cry, have a pray and mourn. But like a celebrity, he's tracked down and surrounded by a seriously large crowd. We're talking 5,000 men, plus women, plus children. That's a pretty big flash mob to get mobbed by. And, you know, this crowd, they're not just there to see Jesus. They haven't come to console Jesus about John. No, a good percentage of them have come to be healed. They want to take from Jesus. Now, I don't know what you would have done. I know I'd have been tempted to uh, jump back in the boat and tell the disciples to keep rowing. And yet Jesus, Jesus is the compassionate king and he does the opposite. He doesn't do it like Herod, out of fear or worry of what people will say or do. He doesn't do it like Herod to try and save face, to look good. It's not a PR stunt that Jesus is about to pull. No, Jesus is motivated by something completely different. And where Herod earlier had jumped to the wrong conclusion about Jesus, now it's the disciples' turn to jump to the wrong conclusion. Have a look at verse 15. As evening approached, so Jesus has probably been at this all day. We don't know you know, when they arrived, but it's getting late. And the disciples came to him and very reasonably said, hey, Jesus, we're out in the middle of nowhere. It's getting late. Verse 15, send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now, have you uh, ever underestimated someone's kindness before? Ever found yourself, you know, ex- underestimating how generous or kind or caring someone might be in a given situation. Uh, Quite a few years ago, um, Keely and I know a pastor on the east coast of Australia, and uh, when when he and his wife were a young couple, uh, you know, just living in a little flat, uh, they hosted an American guy uh, who was out here for a while uh, as as a housemate. Uh, Now, this guy was a total slob. Uh, he didn't clean, he didn't cook, he didn't do anything, you know, and the, you know, the kind of points at which they're thinking, well, 
<laughs> man, this guy's a drag, should we kick him out? Uh, and they didn't. Uh, they kept having him there, they showed kindness, they kept doing all the cooking and the cleaning. Uh, and eventually this guy left and I think they thought, oh, thank goodness. And uh, he went back to the States and they lost contact. Uh, many years later, uh, this, this friend planted a church uh, and they, down the track, this church was growing and like us, they were thinking, man, we need our own space. <laughs> we're stuck in these schools and it's restrictive and, and they wanted to build a building. And so their email newsletter went out and, uh, with a proposal uh, that they were working, they'd found a block of land and they were wanting to buy, uh, buy this land and build a building. Now, he would never have dreamed, or even this American guy probably never crossed his mind, he never even thought to ask this guy for anything. But he was on the email newsletter and he'd seen that they were raising money for this building and he'd actually done quite well for himself and built up a business and he saw how much they were trying to raise and he wrote him a cheque for the whole lot, the whole thing, in one go. Bang, easiest fundraising campaign in the world. <laughs> My friend never would have even asked. Would have completely underestimated not only his generosity and kindness, but also his ability to provide. And at this moment, that's exactly what the disciples are doing, isn't it? The disciples have completely underestimated Jesus on two counts on his kindness and compassion and generosity and on his power to be able to do something for the people. Okay, Jesus, there's thousands of people here. You've healed them. You've taught them. You've given them plenty. It's time to send them home. Look, they're hungry. We're hungry. Just let them go. We can have this, this you know, we've got some fish and sandwiches and, and we'll bunk down for the night. And maybe the disciples were just projecting how they felt onto Jesus. You know, I'm pretty sure they were tired and hungry and they were probably thinking, yep, it's time for everyone to go. But they'd underestimated Jesus' compassion and power. What a contrast, isn't there? Between Herod, the, the weak and cruel king, to Jesus, this powerful and compassionate king. Look at Jesus' words, just packed full of compassion. Verse 16, Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. Come on, guys. How long have you been with me? Don't you know me yet? I'm about to give my very life for these people. Do you really think I'd be too stingy to give them some food? And come on, guys, don't you realise I'm the one who put every single fish in the sea? with just a word, out of nothing. Don't you think I can take this little lunch and feed a few people? Verse 18. Bring the food here to me, he said. He directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples, the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, I don't know, but I have a hunch here that Jesus, when he prayed, wasn't just thanking God for the loaves and the fishes. 
I think he was probably giving thanks for this opportunity to reveal what God is like. I think Jesus was probably giving thanks to God for this opportunity to show God's compassion and generosity and power to all these people. Because that's exactly what Jesus is doing, isn't it? So, I don't know, I think sometimes we think of this event as displaying Jesus' power, you know, and it is amazing to take five bread rolls and two fish and feed thousands and thousands of people and then have more left over than you started with. That's powerful. That's a miracle. But if Jesus just wanted to display his power, there are plenty more spectacular ways he could have done it. He could have gone like that and all the fish out of the water could have just jumped out and landed. You know, there's so many ways Jesus could have displayed his power. And yet the bigger picture here is that Jesus is displaying his compassion and his kindness and his generosity. See, while Herod the king at his feast, looked after his own interests. Jesus, at his feast, looked after the interests of others. While Herod served himself, Jesus served the people. While Herod's generous offer to his niece was anything but generous or compassionate, it's completely driven by self-interest and lust and weakness. Jesus is the compassionate king whose generosity is real and abundant and true and other person focused. He doesn't send the needy away. And his generosity is completely over and above, isn't it? Verse 20. They all ate. 5,000 men plus the women plus the children. We're talking enough people to fill the Adelaide Entertainment Centre three times over. They all ate. And then at the end, there were 12 basketfuls of leftover. Now, 12 isn't just a random number. It's not just that there happened to be 12 baskets, not 10 and not 15. Jesus did this deliberately, exactly, because 12 is a specific symbol of God's promise, of complete fullness, of the fullness of God's people. The 12 tribes, the 12 disciples, and we see it feature more as we get into Revelation. And Jesus' generosity here, I think he's showing us that his generosity doesn't just, in that moment, go to those 5,000 plus people. I think the 12 basketfuls left over here is showing us that his generosity extends to the fullness of all of God's people. All of his promises. Just as Jesus healed all those people on that day, just as Jesus provided food and the needs of all of those people on that day, Jesus will heal all his people. Jesus provides the needs of all his people. Jesus is incredibly, mind-bogglingly, compassionate and generous king. And I think actually here, as we read, looking back, knowing the rest of the story, actually, as we look back and we see Jesus in that moment praying before breaking the bread, 
I think we should remember another moment when Jesus stopped, prayed for his people and broke bread. Because it's no accident that on the night before Jesus died, he gave us a meal to remember him. Not of bread and fish, but of bread and wine. And this meal reminds us that the true feast that multiplies and grows to fill all of God's people throughout history with plenty left over is the feast that Jesus gives us at the cross. The true food that multiplies to fill countless people, young and old, men and women of every tribe and tongue and nation, the true food is not bread and fish, but Jesus' body, broken for us in his limitless compassion and mercy. Broken to heal us and cleanse us and sustain us for eternal life. There's more than enough to go around, isn't there? It won't run out. No one need miss out on this feast. But I think often we make the same mistake as disciples, don't we? How often in our everyday interactions with those in our world who are spiritually lost, spiritually sick, spiritually starved, how often do we make that same assumption as the disciples? How often do we think that actually Jesus doesn't have the compassion to heal them? Or maybe that Jesus doesn't have the power to help them? How often do we send away people who need Jesus completely empty-handed? We underestimate Jesus' compassion and his power. Jesus says still today to us, they don't need to go away. Yes, they need spiritual food. Yes, they need spiritual healing. Yes, they need me, says Jesus. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Bring them here to me. Now, it might feel like spiritually, all you have to offer someone is a few crumbs. Maybe you feel completely under-equipped to share the good news of Jesus with someone who desperately needs him. Who feels a bit ill-equipped? I feel ill-equipped. I've done four years of Bible college. Jesus will take, just like he did, with that measly offering that the disciples had. He will take our measly offering and he can make of it a meal. Jesus can use the few crumbs and scraps that you have to point people to Jesus. Those few feeble words that say, well, actually, do you know that Jesus loves you? Actually, do you know that Jesus cares that you're hurting? Actually, do you know that Jesus gave his life up? so that you can have life. Trust the compassion and the power of Christ. You may feel a bit like the disciples. You might feel like, oh, come on, Jesus, haven't we done enough already today? You know, I helped this person with their shopping. I mowed their lawn. I've, you know, come and help them out with this thing they're working on at work. I've done my kind deed. Isn't that enough? Can't we just send them away now and and they can sort themselves out? Or maybe we feel like Herod. Maybe we feel that pressure of saving face, the the fear of what people will say or do and that desire to 
to impress. But Jesus says, don't send them away. You give them something to eat. I think I just want to stop for a moment uh, and we're going to pause here and we're going to finish on this thought. Actually, stories like this are incredibly powerful, aren't they? You know that actually God could have given us the Bible. He could have told us about Jesus with no stories. He could have told us all the facts about Jesus without a single story. But he didn't, did he? He gave us stories. And why? They're not made-up stories, they're real stories. Why did he give it to us in the stories of what Jesus said and did? Because these stories are incredibly powerful and compelling. Because they show who Jesus is, they show the truth of Jesus in a way that just bare facts can't. And so I actually want to say to you guys this morning, maybe the bread and fish that you have, that little something that seems measly, is the stories about Jesus. The stories that you can share with people in your life that show, they don't just say who Jesus is, they show who he is. Compassionate, powerful, kind, loving, sacrificial, just, good, righteous, holy. And so I want to leave you with something this morning. I want to leave you uh, with this. This is our morning tea question this morning. We're actually going to do a little practice. Sounds fun? We're going to practice with each other this morning. How do we share a story about Jesus? And so this morning, over morning tea, I want you to share, ask each other and share with each other what are some of your favourite examples of Jesus displaying his compassion and power? Think of just stories from the Bible that we know and how they show how powerful Jesus is. Share the stories and just recognise what it says about who Jesus is. And I want to leave you guys with a challenge this week, an encouragement. Look for an opportunity to share a story about Jesus with someone in your life this week. Like Jesus, pray that the person you share with will see their true significance. Don't send them away. See what Jesus will do with it.